All right, if you would, take out your Bible, or if you didn't bring a Bible, take out the one in front of you and join us in the Gospel of John is where we're going to be today. Um, it's John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24, and if you don't own a Bible and the one you're using right now in front of you is the one you're using today, take it home as our gift to you. Um, that is a gift um, that we want you to take. All the Bibles in the pews are there for those who do not have one um, so that you can bring God's Word with you. You wherever you go. Uh, our reading is from John chapter 20, beginning at verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today is the third Sunday in this New Year sermon series that we're calling Airplane Mode, and it is an opportunity for us uh, to, to hear the invitation, just like when you turn Airplane Mode on on your phone, it turns off all the distractions. We can choose to set out space to do that as well so that we can connect to God, the one that makes us whole. And we're loosely following the themes in the book that I mentioned during the announcements. Its, it's title is Good and Beautiful and Kind. The subtitle is Becoming Whole in a Fractured World by author and pastor Rich Velotis. And we're on the final Sunday of this portion of our journey and asking the question, what is at the root? cause of the fractures that are taking place in our world today. And the first week, if you didn't join us, you're just joining us now, I'm going to give you a very, very quick summary. We boiled down the most common denominator of every fraction in the world is sin. And the working definition that we're using from the book is this, let's say it out loud, sin is a failure to love. The definition of sin being a failure to love is a reminder to us that every single sin, because sin, the word sin, carries with it all of these connotations, and you think about all these kinds of things, but really, Jesus said that all the law and the prophets can be boiled down to love God and love others as you love yourself. And so every sin can be rooted in this understanding that ultimately it is a failure to love. And last week we talked about how this is not just simply a failure of will. Uh, you could beat yourself up and think you're going to try harder, but the reality is that there are spiritual forces at play, like a current that's drawing us away from the shores of God's love and loving our neighbor and into the dark abyss. And so that's the reality in which we live. And today, we're going to grapple with the effects of living in a world that is marked with wounds and brokenness. The effects 
that show us and remind us we all have wounds that are having an impact on ourselves, but they also have an impact on the way in which we can connect with the people around us. I I remember several years ago, and I haven't found the person who this story is about yet, so if it's about you, you're going to have to come talk to me after the service, and I'll know that I'm talking about you. Nothing embarrassing. Um, It was somebody from our church. They had this pretty major shoulder surgery, and they came to church the next Sunday, right after they had the shoulder surgery, and there's this thing that I'll often do when I'm talking to somebody. I'll inadvertently take my hand, and I'll reach out, and I'll put it on your shoulder. Maybe I've done this for you. And I did this to this woman who was telling me about her shoulder surgery, and I touched the shoulder she just had surgery on. And and you would think that she was going to need to have surgery again because she jumped back. It hurt so bad. It immediately just, this this reaction, I guess it, it hurt so bad that for the next several weeks, when, when I would come up to her in church, um, she would step back, worried <laughs> that I was going to. So fair warning, if you do have shoulder surgery, let me know about it, especially before you ask me to pray or something like that. But I, I thought about that example, and I thought that, man, in much of the same way, we all carry wounds, even if they're not physical, even if they've been operated on, even if they've been healed over. Um, these last couple of years, I have entered into the season of life where it is prudence to go to the dermatologist and, um, and have skin checks, right? And they'll take off suspicious um, skin and moles. And I had a mole removed on my back last year. And even though it's healed over, it's, it's in kind of in a place you can't reach it, you can't really see it. And yet, even though it is scarred, it reminds me every once in a while that it's there because it itches. And I think about all of the scars that we carry, and it reminds me of our reading today that that they can be painful and that we carry them with us. But what we will see in the gospel of Jesus as we look at our wounds through the lens of the cross is that they can also point us to God's good. And so that brings us to our reading today. We're in the Gospel of John, and we're finding ourselves in the middle of the immediate aftermath of Easter. This is is right after the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. It's before the ascension of Jesus, before he is back seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, You might remember Jesus rose from the grave, and it was the women that went and first found him in the empty tomb, And if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, you'll learn that the 11 disciples, uh, Judas had already died. The 11 others, though, they didn't believe the women right away. Uh, let's, Let's turn and look at this again. Luke 24, 9, it says... When they came back from the tomb, they they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others who were told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And so we got Peter here who is wondering, but none of the 11 believed, which makes me ask the question, what is it going to take to get them to believe? What is it going to take to get them 
to believe. And so later in John chapter 20, where our reading comes, just before the reading, 10 out of the 11 remaining disciples are locked up in a room. Uh, to, to give you some context, Jerusalem is upside down. Uh, they had just celebrated the Passover, but Jesus' execution had occurred, and it was the talk of the city. There was all of this division that was beginning to brew. It was already well brewing, and, and these disciples were the men that were the closest to Jesus. And the one that's missing is the disciple Thomas. And we don't know why, we don't know where he was, but that detail is going to be important here in just a minute. Verse 19 says that on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And so to answer the question, what did it take for the disciples to believe? It took seeing his wounds. He showed them his hands and his side. The places that were pierced with nails and a spear just days before as these men watched. And, and in my hand is a nail. Uh, many of you have been through, we've done this a number of times at St. John's during the season of Lent on Good Friday, the Stations of the Cross. Uh, if you come from a Roman Catholic background, in the sanctuary you'll see these steps. It's a tradition that, that comes from the ancient church to walk through the last hours of the life and leading to the death of Jesus. And there's a station for where Jesus is nailed to the cross. And at that station we have nails that help us to imagine the size nail that it would take to pierce the flesh of Jesus. This is what he went through. This is what the disciples watched. And it was the wounds that were created from that experience that he showed the disciples that they would believe that it was him and that he had risen from the grave. And then he does this, verse 21. He says, again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. It's fascinating that no sooner does he show them his own wounds, he empowers them to go and turn to the wounds of others. Friends, that's what it means to go and forgive sin, because what is sin? Say it with me again. Sin is a failure to love. Forgiveness is forgiving those who have failed to love. And so the risen Jesus sends the disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be balm to the soul of a weary world. And he does it by extending forgiveness for every failure to love that they have ever experienced and that they ever will, and then giving them the power to do the same for the people around them the same way that he has forgiven them, which is a three-step process. He shows them his wounds. I am broken. I have been broken for you. He shares his peace, not once but twice, and then he invites them on his mission to share that forgiving love with the world. And it reminds me, that this is a process, and this takes time. 
And as we're reading it in the Gospel of John, we realize that there is a lot taking place that we're reading between the lines. These disciples have been through a traumatic experience that over the course of the last three days, to be honest, it is the most traumatic experience that has ever taken place in human history. And it's the reason why we're still talking about it 2,000 years later. But for them personally, three years, they have followed Jesus. They left everything. He became everything to them, and then they watched him become everything to everybody around them through their teachers' teaching and through the healings and all of the ways in which he was ministering to the world, and even on the journey to Jerusalem. And then they get there, and what felt to them like a sudden turn of events, Jesus was arrested in the middle of the night. And then they find out he was turned in by one of their own Judas. And it wasn't just Judas. Judas was the one they trusted with the money. He was the treasurer. He was the trusted one among them. He, he, they dragged him up to a hill. They hung him on a tree. And the people who watched this responded the same way anybody responds when they witness a traumatic event themselves. They froze. They fought. They ran. Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And now all of Jerusalem is up in arms over his death. And these are the 11 men that are closest to him. Which suggests to me that when they're hiding in this room, they're not just hiding from the people outside the room, but they're also hiding from what's happening inside of themselves too. See, nobody else in the world in that particular moment can fully relate to their unique experience of being called by Jesus, follow me, giving him three years of their life, leaving everything and watching him die. And it reminds me that when we walk through our own traumatic experiences, nobody can fully relate to yours either. A lot of people like to say, and they like to say it to me, Pastor, there's people that have it worse, right? Like, have you ever said that? Is, it, is, is there anybody that that's made feel better <laughs> in your experience? See, all of our experiences of trauma are unique, and it was for them too. It reminds me, a while back, I was encouraged to read a book. Uh, the book's title is, is The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, the subtitle is Brain, Mind, and Body and the Healing of Trauma. And it's become a seminal book for social workers and for anybody that serves people. And in it, the author, who is a medical doctor, he, he describes the lingering impact of going through a traumatic experience. And, and it can be all sorts of different things. It can be the loss of a loved one. It can be war veterans suffering from PTSD. It can be a, a victim of abuse and neglect, it could be witnessing violence. Uh, and, and what we're learning scientifically is what we've actually known always experientially, and that is that these moments stick with us. In, in one part of the book, the author says this. He says, long after a traumatic experience is over, it may be reactivated at the slightest hint of danger and mobilize disturbed brain circuits and secrete massive amounts of stress hormones. This precipitates unpleasant emotions, intense physical sensations, and impulsive and aggressive actions. These post-traumatic reactions feel incomprehensible and overwhelming. Feeling out of control, survivors of trauma often begin to fear that they are damaged to the core 
beyond redemption. Beyond redemption. Is that not a devastating thing to say? Beyond redemption, and yet beyond redemption is how the disciples were feeling as they're locked up in this room. Everything around them is reactivating what they have just experienced. In other words, they keep reliving the cross over and over and over again. Not the redemption of the cross, but the death of the cross, the shame of the cross, the guilt of the cross, the shattered hope of the cross, the unbearable loss of the cross. Which is why my guess is that while they were hiding in that room out of fear of those outside the room, what they were most afraid of was what was within themselves. And I guess that because I've seen that in myself too. And my guess is that so have you and so has anyone who has ever experienced trauma in their life, which is everyone. I met with two different people just yesterday who would say that they're experiencing it right now. And so whether your story is death or your trauma is a divorce or a betrayal, isn't every instance of abuse and neglect an experience at the hands of a person that has failed to love you the way God has designed you to be loved? Even death itself is the ultimate consequence of sin that creates the ultimate barrier that we on our own cannot overcome to love and to be loved by those who love us. Which is why when Jesus comes, when it comes to our trauma and our wounds and our sin and our failure to love, Jesus didn't just come to bring his words, but he also brought his wounds. You have a lot of people who don't go to church and aren't religious who will say, well, Jesus was a good teacher, but that's not enough for somebody that's been through a traumatic experience. He, did, he was a good teacher. He is a good teacher. But he didn't just bring words. He brought his wounds. And there's a certain level on which theologians don't fully understand on a theological level why Jesus came out, right? He's, he's resurrected. He's no longer up on the cross. He's alive. He's not dead. And yet, he still carries his wounds. I imagine it's as if to say to the disciples in the world around him, if these wounds have not damaged me beyond hope, if these wounds have not damaged me beyond redemption, beyond resurrection, then your wounds are not beyond your redemption either. You look at that story, you'll see that, that he shows them his wounds, and when he's with the original ten disciples, he shares his peace, and he shares his peace not once, but he shares it twice. And you know why? Because when you're reeling from trauma, you don't slow down right away, do you? And so Jesus in his kindness comes into that place of fear and says, peace, I bring you. Peace. Like he says to Martha, remember Martha and Mary, Martha's running around and all these things. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. He shares his peace not once, but twice. And for those 10 disciples who were gathered in that place, this all worked. Jesus came and, and he shared his wounds, but we're talking about the one today that it didn't work for. What about Thomas, who wasn't there? 
Because sometimes despite our greatest efforts and showing our wounds and sharing our peace, and even when we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, which the disciples were when they told Thomas, guess what, Jesus is alive. But yet sometimes that even is still not enough. And it brings us back to Thomas. He's the only one that was missing that first time when Jesus came back to them. We don't know a lot about Thomas. We, we, we know actually very little about him, and I was struck by that as I was reading. We, we do know that he has a really great name. My name is Thomas. <laughs> He's probably smart and attractive and all those things. I'll bet he'd root for the bears too, right? We don't know any of that. <laughs> We do know a little bit, though. We know that on one hand, his fear is not physically trapping him in those beginning moments the way that the other ten disciples are physically trapped. And yet, the trauma that they've been through together has Thomas trapped in a different way. He's trapped in doubt. He's trapped in cynicism. And so we get to verse 24, and it says, Now Thomas, who's also known as the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks on his hands, unless I put my finger where the nails were, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now again, we don't know a whole lot about Thomas, but we can learn some things from the three times he speaks in the Gospel of John. The the, the first one is John chapter 11. You remember the story where where Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, the brother of Mary and Martha, um, he got deathly ill, and they had called for Jesus to heal him, and the disciples didn't want to journey back to where he was because it was a dangerous journey, and people were already out to kill Jesus, and so the disciples kind of beat around the bush now we shouldn't go but then Thomas spoke up and he said come on guys let's go so that we can die with him and you can read the cynicism in there but he's willing to go and then we fast forward a couple of chapters later in John 14 and Jesus has explained to the disciples in his death and his resurrection and all of that that he is going to go to a place to prepare for them right a house of many rooms. And he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. And we read this verse, these verses at almost every funeral because it gives those left behind hope that Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place. And that's true. But the reason that I love these verses is because of what Thomas asks, and it's what everybody else is thinking. He says to Jesus, where are you going? (laughs) We don't know the way. And Jesus' response to Thomas is I am the way. And in John chapter 20, we see that Jesus makes a way, and he makes a way through his own experience of trauma, his own experience in death, his own experience coming up against every brokenness you and I ever have or ever will experience. Jesus was betrayed by those closest to him and the people around him. He was let down He was physically and emotionally and spiritually beaten. He was abandoned. He was misunderstood. He came to love the world he created, and they rejected him. And it all leads us to John chapter 20, where Jesus has died, and he rose, and Thomas doesn't believe it because he's seen the whole thing. 
He doesn't believe any of it. And verse 26 says, A week later his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and he stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And there's a few observations. The first one here is that there is an entire week between verse 25 and verse 26. And I think to myself, a week is a long time when you are experiencing something traumatic. Just this week, I was praying with a gentleman whose wife went in for a mammogram. And he asked me to pray because the results came back as inconclusive. And so they've ordered more testing, but they have to wait for that testing. And so they wait. And I think he would tell you that a week is a long time to wait. And so a week goes by and Jesus comes and again for a third time now, right? He shares his peace and he says in verse 27 to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. The rest of the disciples believed when they saw Jesus' wounds, but Thomas needed to touch them. And so what does Jesus do? Does Jesus chastise him? Does does Jesus yell at him? Does, Does Jesus rake him over the coals? No. Jesus says, here, reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Enter my wound so that you can move beyond your own wounds and believe. Jesus meets him where he's at. And I remember watching this play out. Somebody had recommended this to me. The, remember on TV, it was a number of years ago, they did the Bible, A.D., um, it was titled something like that. They did it in episodes, and, and it was right after Easter that they did this part of the story. And I remember watching this, this particular part, this episode, and, and I remember weeping when Thomas touched the wounds of Jesus. And I don't know why I was weeping. I'm not a crier at movies. Um, I only cry at Hallmark Christmas movies. And that's because I'm laughing really hard. But anyway, <laughs> I didn't cry. And it's on TV, so it's not like the Passion of the Christ. But I didn't cry when he went on the cross. And, and I was moved by it, right? I, I, but I didn't cry at that episode. I I, I, didn't, I didn't cry at a bunch of different places, but I cried when Jesus touched, when Thomas touched the wounds of Jesus. And, and I've, I've wondered that up until this point. Why did I cry? And I wonder if it's because I need to touch Jesus' wounds too in order to know that my wounds don't have to be the end of my story either. And I need to tell you that I need that so that you know that your wounds don't have to be the end of your story as well. This is why Jesus says at the end, verse 29, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And that begs the last question that we'll ask, how are others to be blessed to believe if they don't see the wounds of Jesus? Well, who is the body of Christ? (laughs) It's you. It's me. It's his church. And that means that people can see the hope of Jesus when they see our wounds as well. Reminds me of the the late author Brennan Manning. 
He was uh, an author, former Franciscan priest. He served the poor. He was committed to the contemplative life. He was open in his struggles with alcohol. And, and in his book uh, titled Abba Father, The Heart of, for Intimate Belonging, he wrote this. He said, in a futile attempt to erase our past, we deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become a light for others. Friends, everyone is impressed when they see someone else's strength. We have technology to communicate to the world our strengths, to the world around us. We can boast about our strengths to the people close to us. But while people are always to be impressed with our strengths, the only way that they connect is when they see our weakness. The only way that they connect is when they see our weakness. And connection is what a fractured world needs to come back together. And the promise of God is that your wounds and mine, whether they are addiction or abuse or betrayal or violence or neglect or any other manner of a failure to love, they no longer are the end of your story any more than Jesus' wounds are the end of his. Good Friday is not good because death is good. It's because from now on, death is no longer the end. Jesus isn't on the cross. Easter is coming. And for those of us living into it, we are reminded that it is already here. And if that's true, then like Jesus, our wounds can become beacons of light in a world of darkness. And let me say, that does not mean that it happens in the moment of continued healing, okay? It does not mean that you need to go and share your wounds with everybody and anybody. I, I, I'm amazed at the detail here that, that we find that, that Jesus didn't get up. You know, he, he preached to thousands, right? He fed those with fish and loaves. But when he showed his wounds, he only showed them to the 11 that were closest to him. It was an intimate moment. And yet that intimate moment of sharing the weakness that became our strength started a movement. And it shows us that our vessel, our wounds can be vessels as well through which the Holy Spirit can shine through to forgive the world's sins, to forgive every failure to love. And it's why the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so as you prepare right now, as our, as our musicians come forward and as you prepare your heart to come and receive communion, I want to invite you to consider something. As I said, we've got these nails from that station of the cross and I've got these nails sitting right here in front of us and, and I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to bring to your your heart's eye bring to the forefront of your mind a wound 
that you need the healing power of Jesus to touch. A question that, like Thomas, you feel cynical about. Is redemption and resurrection true for me and what I have gone through? And as God brings those wounds to the surface, as you come forward for Holy Communion, touch the nails. Touch Jesus' wounds. And remember that the cross is not foolishness to us because it is in the cross that we are saved. Lord Jesus, I'm reminded of another place in which you prepared the disciples and you prepare us for life on earth, and that is that in this world there will be trouble. And that trouble is painful. And that trouble pierces our bodies, but it pierces our minds and our souls as well. And so help us not to forget the next part of that instruction that in this world there will be trouble, but do not have fear for I have overcome the world. You have and you will overcome every wound we face, every brokenness we carry, every effect that living in a world that has failed to love you and love others the way you've designed us to has marred our bodies just as your body took on the wounds of the cross. And for many of us, we're living in the week between verse 25 and 26. We're waiting for your redemption to come. We're asking the questions of Thomas. We struggle to believe. And so we pray, help us in our unbelief. We name our questions. We name our wounds knowing that in Jesus, you meet us in that place. And invite us to reach out our hand and touch you. Not that we would continue to live in that place, but that through your presence, we might find hope that just as your wounds did not lead to your continual death, but that you rose from the grave on the third day, that we too will find resurrection in you.